You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Lee Morrissey from Clemson University. His paper was entitled Lycidas. A Stuart Reading of Ireland, through Spencer's Tudor Reading of Ireland. I am talking about Lycidas. I'm talking about Lycidas yet once more, to quote Lycidas. Not just yet another person talking about Lycidas yet once more, but I myself am yet once more talking about Lycidas. Three decades ago, Edward Taylor argued that Lycidas is an idol or picture that lacks one half of its frame. Most readers assume that the missing frame is to be found in England, and in the traditions of pastoral poetry. I believe, by contrast, that the missing side of the frame is a little to the west, and that it takes in Ireland, which was framed for Milton by the works of Edmund Spencer. According to the story usually told about Spencer being, as Dryden reported, Milton's original, Milton's Lycidas reworks the pastoral tradition seen in, say, Spencer's Shepherd's Calendar, and Milton's Paradise Lost achieves the complete English epic, which Spencer had earlier attempted with the Fairy Queen. In other words, the point is understood in terms of English literature. In this talk, I situate Milton's Lycidas in an archipelagic conversation with Spencer's Colin Clouds Come Home Again and in a view and a view of the present state of Ireland to argue, with help from Milton's reason of church government, that in Lycidas, Milton is mourning through Edward King what might have been in Ireland. Spencer's Colin Clouds Come Home Again focuses on a shepherd who's returned ostensibly or probably to an island representing Ireland. Milton's poem, written on the occasion of the death of Edward King, who was attempting attempting to return across the Irish Sea to Ireland, are similar poems. Both are pastoral, both about shepherds' departures, both feature talking rivers, and the readings of both hinge on the question of home. In most, reading, in most readings, Colin is an exile from England, an immigrant to Ireland, with a critical distance from the English court. Colin is Spencer, in short, in these readings. However, in the poem, Colin is returning to his home. For Colin, it is England that has been a temporary alternative, one he dislikes, as he tells his fellow shepherds. As Richard McCabe puts it, Collins' voyage out is Spencer's voyage home. Milton's Lycidas offers a rereading of Spencer's earlier poem, in which a new, better ed- educated Colin, Edward King, does not come home again. Spencer's pastoral poem about the advantages of England and a successful trip across the Irish Sea inform Milton's subsequent revision and inversion of it in Lycidas, a poem about the disadvantages of Ireland and an unsuccessful trip across the Irish Sea. 
While he serves as Queen's Justice for County Cork, Ireland, Spencer publishes Colin Cloud's Come Home Again, a simple pastoral, as the preface puts it, dedicated to Raleigh, who visited Spencer in Ireland, and with whom Spencer had not so long before traveled to England. It is also read, as a consequence, as an autobiographical reflection on Spencer's experience in Ireland, that Colin Clout's Dash Spencer has come home again. A simple narrative, Colin Clout's offers a simple protagonist, Colin, who has returned to a boggy land where he has been missed. How great a loss had all the shepherds nation by thy lack, his friends tell him. Invited to recount his adventures, Colin tells a story about rivers, which I hadn't even intended to mention, but just so we know about the merging of two rivers and the angry mountain gods that reacted. But anyway, Colin reports that the other island, the one that he's just returned from, is quieter, safer, and more hopeful than Ireland. With neither wolves nor outlaws, the arts flourish there. But our protagonist, usually thought to represent Spencer, cannot stand the place. It is all too much for a simple shepherd who has returned to Munster instead of living with all that England might have to offer. Spencer's contrast could not have make, made Ireland seem much worse. I don't think we should read the poem, then, as a simple matter of Spencer's self-identification as a humble Irish shepherd adopting the guise of a fool, as Andrew Hadfield puts it. The poem constructs an Anglo-Irish representation of the wild Irish male, primitive, uncivilized, uninterested in becoming civilized and living in retreat on a boggy, noisy island. Very stubborn and untamed, as Spencer will later put it in a view, to which Colin Clouds come home again, Spencer's late poem leads. Neither Colin Clouds come home again, nor a view is impressed with shepherds, i.e. with the actual pastoral activity alluded to in the pastoral poem. Although that's not unusual with the pastoral poems, not often written by shepherds. Nonetheless, their ambiguous position between genres, that is, the ambiguous position that Colin Clouds Come Home Again and, and of you have between pastoral and ethnography actually makes them more powerful as representations. Both reconfigure 16th century English ethnography of the Irish into classical form, which is a feat not to be underestimated. If it were not for that combination, Spencer's claims would not have had the persuasive effect they did on the educated who set 17th century policy in Anglo-Irish relations. In a view, Spencer is concerned not only that the Irish be reformed, but also that England's institutions in Ireland be modernized as well. The English, quote, need to build up and repair all the ruined churches whereof the most part lie even with the ground, end quote. Those churches lie on the ground thanks to the post-Reformation dissolution of the monasteries undertaken as part of Henry's new governance in Ireland. To Spencer, though, that was part of England's process. That was part of where, what was part of England's process of modernizing leads in Ireland simply to ruins. England's process of modernizing leads in Ireland simply to ruins. In addition to little in ecclesiastical infrastructure, the Church of Ireland is populated by by what seems to Spencer to be a pre-Reformation clergy who, quote, neither read scriptures, nor preach to the people, nor administer the communion, but baptism they do, for they christen, yet after the popish fashion, only they take the tithes and the offerings, end quote. Four years after Spencer's review was published, in an edition we know Milton read, Edward King drowns on a return trip from England to Ireland, where he was born, his father having settled in Boyle, 
County Roscommon in 1603. In 1638, Milton contributes Lycidas to the volume Memorializing King. The poem begins in the first person, I come once more to pluck your berries harsh and crude. As it ends, though, we are told, thus sang the uncouth swain, meaning that the first person voice at the beginning is that of a shepherd represented by a poet within a frame within the poem. In between, various other speakers are invoked, including several perspicacious rivers, the Arethus, Mincius, and Cam, and the Sisters of the Sacred Well. Wanting to know if they've seen Edward King's body recently, that is, if the speaking rivers have seen the body, the speaker sobs, Felicitus is dead, dead ere his prime. Indeed, the loss of Felicitus is so powerful, at least in the first third of the poem, that the narrator despairs, what boots it with, unnecess- with uncessant care, asks the narrator, to tend the homely slighted shepherd's trade? This question articulates the crisis of the poem, the possibility that pastoral care itself might not survive the loss of Edward King. This ostensibly spiritual question is also, of course, a political one, having to do with differences between the ecclesiastical polities in England and Ireland. The narrator's complaint in Lycidas about those shepherds who, quote, creep and intrude and climb into the fold is usually read as a veiled criticism of Laud by Milton. In other words, then, the usual reading focuses on what are presumed to be Milton's concerns about the clergy in England. Such a reading, though, obviates any attention to Edward King, per se. The fact that King is Irish-born and that he's sailing toward Ireland disappear under Milton's supposed concerns about pastoral care in England. The fact that the poem honors Edward King disappears. Some might understand Laud as applying to Ireland, but Ireland had its own English figure against which to be opposed in the 1630s, Wentworth. That is the ten- this is the tension indicated in the poem's generic affiliation as pastoral elegy. On one level, Lycidas stands as an elegy in, in a pastoral mode, a poem written in memory of Edward King. But on another level, it can also represent an elegy for the pastoral, including an elegy for pastoral care, until then handled so poorly by the established English Protestant Church in Ireland. The resolution of Lycidas hangs on the narrator's imperative, look homeward, angel. For some, this question is answered in the abstract, idealized Christian terms and refers to heaven or some other post-mortality world. For other, more contextual readers, to look homeward means to look toward England, where Milton pines for the deceased Lycidas. But um, Edward King was born in Ireland. It was his home. So when the poet claims that Lycidas is the genius of the shore, I wonder which shore. In the reason of church government, Milton, claiming that the 1641 Ulster Rising requires, quote, speedy redress, refers to, quote, the poor afflicted remnant of our martyred countrymen that sit there on the seashore, counting the hours of our delay with their size. In that case, then, the shore is here in Ireland. This image of a lost tribe of the English caught in an Irish Babylon would carry substantial pathos in England at the time. Lycidas, in an archipelagic reading then, carries none of Samuel Johnson's sense that the poem represents relief or that the poet is conveying relief that it wasn't he 
who died in the circumstances in the Irish Sea. Because it wasn't going to be an English Milton. And it should have been Edward King. For it's King who represented an, an inter-Ireland possibility for Irish Reformation. A studious, well-educated Protestant Irishman, he answers Spencer's call in a view for, quote, such sufficient English ministers sent over to Ireland as might be presented to any bishop, neither unlearned nor of some bad note. The crisis narrated by Lycidas, then, is spiritual, political, and regional. An Irishman educated to the highest levels of education England could offer died on his attempted return to his native island. Cambridge does not prepare King for getting to Ireland. Indeed, another poem in the 1638 collection about King says he was, quote, loaded down with learning and talent, as if his education were too much for a passage on the Irish Sea. As a consequence, Ireland implicitly will be left to its own and to an incompetent Anglican church in Ireland. If Edward King could not survive passage across the Irish Sea, what else of English Protestantism or of the Reformation itself might also perish en route? Therefore, quote, King and State join in this loss, another contributor to the same volume devoted to King writes. Not only do church and state both experience the loss, rather in this loss they are joined. The loss of a prospective Protestant Irish leader going back from England joins church and state, and in a way joins church and state in drowning between England and Ireland. After the publication of Lycidas in that 1638 collection, Milton adds two prefatory sentences. The first, quote, In this monody, the author bewails a learned friend, unfortunately drowned in his passage from Chester on the Irish Seas, 1637, probably added in 1641. The second prefatory sentence, and by occasion foretells the ruin of our corrupted clergy then in their height, is added in 1645. Generations of commentators have seen these editions as revisions through which Milton attempts to claim prophetic powers, which, in fact, the argument goes, he had lacked at the time. However, 1637 situates King's drowning in the midst of a conflict between England, Ireland, and Scotland, the year in which the Scots reject the Book of Common Prayer. And in the Spencerian vision, as described in the view, there is no place where the English clergy are more corrupted than they are in Ireland. No prophetic powers are needed then, just an awareness of King's background, of the archipelagic situation, and as a result of the implications of King's death. If anything, then, Milton might be emphasizing the possessive aspect of the pronoun our in our corrupted clergy. Referring to the English Protestant Church, in this case in Ireland, on implicitly their land. See, for example, the reason of church government and Milton's reference to the little care that our prelates have had of their souls. The loss of a Cambridge-educated Irish-born English settler's family's child, such as Edward King, represented, that is, a profound setback for the development of our clergy there. So, in 2011, Nicholas McDowell asked, how Laudian is the young Milton? I think it's a wonderful question. I'm asking a related question here. How Wentworthian was the young Milton? My sense is that Milton was more Wentworthian for Ireland than he was Laudian for England in the 1630s. 
because, influenced by Spencer, he wanted an English investment in the established Church of Ireland. But the consequences of supporting Wentworth in England in the 1630s included moving Ireland toward the Ulster Rising of 1641, Ireland's independence in the 1640s, and England's civil war, not to mention Cromwell's subsequent revenge in a government in which Milton served. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.